Welcome to Digital Yom, a podcast about living a symbolic life in a technological age. Man cannot stand a meaningless life. I'm Jason Smith, Jungian analyst and author of Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life. And in this episode, we discuss the experience of nature and its connection to the important work of individuation. It's the human soul. That's the buried treasure. At Bollingen, I am in the midst of my true life. I am most deeply myself. At times, I feel as if I am spread out over the landscape and inside things, and am myself living in every tree, in the plashing of the waves, in the clouds and the animals that come and go, in the procession of the seasons. There is nothing in the tower that has not grown into its own form over the decades, nothing with which I am not linked. Here everything has its history and mine. Here is space for the spaceless kingdom of the worlds and the psyche's hinterland. This quote comes from Jung's autobiographical book, Memories, Dreams, Reflections. It's the expression of a man who has achieved a deep harmony with himself and with nature. In many ways, it describes the ideal of many spiritual traditions, and certainly of Jung's own idea of the goal of what he calls individuation. Now, Jung has a great deal to say in his writings about the process of individuation and what it means, but at its heart, it has a very simple definition. It is, he says, a process by which a person becomes the definite, unique being that he or she, in fact, is. And this process is nothing unusual or esoteric, but is rather simply an expression of the innate and spontaneous unfolding found throughout nature. That movement, as Jung writes, by which every living being becomes what it was destined to become from the beginning. A classic image often used to describe this process is that of an acorn that becomes an oak tree. The oak tree, 
in some sense, already exists as a potential within the acorn. Given the right conditions for growth, the oak can become what it already is and is meant to be. In the context of psychology, individuation can be understood as a kind of return to our own natural unfolding, a return, in part, to nature, from which we have become alienated due to an overdevelopment of mind and consciousness. Individuation, says Jung, is a natural process. It is what makes a tree turn into a tree. If it's interfered with, then it becomes sick and cannot function as a tree. But left to itself, it develops into a tree. That is individuation. Now, an important thing that I want to draw attention to in all this is this connection between individuation and nature. To call individuation a natural process doesn't just indicate that it's not artificial or it's not something imposed on the basis of theory. It also means that it is an expression of nature itself. It's what makes a tree turn into a tree, and it's what makes us turn into ourselves. And this is something central to Jung's understanding of the psyche. Psychic life is in no way separate from the natural world. This understanding of Jung's is apparent, for instance, in a description that he gives on the nature of dreams, in which he writes that dreams are impartial, spontaneous products of the unconscious psyche, outside the control of the will. They are pure nature. And as I stated in the very first episode of this podcast, what is the symbolic life? Consciousness is a mixed blessing. Because of it, we are able to separate ourselves from a merely unconscious animal existence and to develop a technical mastery over much of life. At the same time, however, we become disconnected from our own instinctual nature. And for Jung, it's through an engagement with the psyche that this nature can be reclaimed. And so he continues his description of dreams by saying, they show us the unvarnished natural truth and are therefore fitted as nothing else is to give us back an attitude that accords with our basic human nature when our consciousness has strayed too far from its foundations and run into an impasse. Now, in our opening quote from Jung, there are three important elements that can be discerned in what he says. There is the natural environment that surrounds him, the trees, the plashing waves, the clouds, and the animals that come and go. There is the vast interior landscape, what he calls the spaceless kingdom of the worlds and the psyche's hinterland. And finally, there is Jung, 
the person, standing in between and linked inseparably with both. It's the interrelationship between these three elements, the external environment, the interior landscape, and the person embedded in both that is the concern and the work of individuation. All three of these elements make up what Jung understands as the self. Myself is not confined to my body, he states. It extends into all the things I have made and all the things around me. Without these things, I would not be myself. I would not be a human being. And here we come to the crucial point that individuation, becoming who and what one is, is not the same as individualism, the asserting of an ego that is disconnected from all things and all others. We exist in a complex web of relationships and cannot abstract ourselves from the contexts in which we live. The self, in other words, includes the environment that surrounds and sustains us, the relationships that we must navigate and negotiate, and the culture, both ancient and modern, personal and impersonal, that shapes our way of seeing and imagining. One implication of what I just said about all that constitutes the self is that it points to the paradox at the heart of individuation. To come into ourselves, we must go beyond ourselves. We are not isolated, exclusive, self-existent entities. Rather, we are interdependent and interacting beings. And one domain in which this fact is particularly consequential is, of course, the domain of nature. Though collectively our relationship to nature is profoundly wounded, it continues to offer a healing potential for us. It is in nature where the experience of coming into ourselves by going beyond ourselves can perhaps best be understood. The writer John O'Donohue beautifully describes just this experience. Rather than taking us out of ourselves, nature coaxes us deeper inwards, teaches us to rest in the serenity of our elemental nature. When we go out among nature, clay is returning to clay. We are returning to participate in the stillness of the earth that first dreamed us. When did we forget that we too are nature, that we too are of the earth that first dreamed us? I mentioned already the mixed blessing of consciousness. With the emergence of mind comes the ability to separate and differentiate, to be able to distinguish one thing from another, 
When we can isolate a thing from its context and the web of relationships in which it's embedded, we can begin to think about it. We can know it in the sense that we can identify it and even put it to use for some purpose. And this is undoubtedly a good thing. But this separating tendency also separates us from the things that we encounter. We become observers, standing apart from what we see. And so a disjunction occurs. We become estranged from nature, from others, and even from ourselves. And they become strangers to us. And since all our technologies are essentially amplifications of this tendency of the mind, directed to practical and utilitarian ends, this disjunction also continues to be amplified right up to the present day. When we forget that nature, that other beings, and that our own persons are all part of one great whole, that they constitute at a deep level our very self, the consequences of this forgetting are devastating. The reason why the world lacks unity and lies broken and in heaps, wrote Ralph Waldo Emerson almost 300 years ago, is because man is disunited with himself. We need to project ourselves into the things around us, said Jung. And what he means is that our environments tell us who we are. That is, they reflect our unknown face back to us. And if that environment is too limited, what we are able to discover of and for ourselves will be limited too. Only nature, Jung felt, had the scope to be an adequate mirror to the human soul. In an urban environment, things quickly become homogenized and standardized. It offers so few possibilities for self-expression, he asserted. In a standardized milieu, it is easy to lose the sense of one's own personality, of one's individuality. Jung's reflections anticipate by 65 years or more a recent spate of studies that show the mental health benefits of spending time in nature. One study out of the Netherlands even showed that just looking at pictures of nature as opposed to pictures of urban settings was effective in lowering a person's level of stress. But as impressive as these studies are, they are still framed in terms of something utilitarian, reducing stress or alleviating depression. And these are, of course, important and valuable. But what Jung is suggesting is something like an encounter with a vital source of meaning, such that we could say, as he does, I am in the midst of my true life. I 
am most deeply myself. The healing quality of the natural world, together with a sense of its ineffable grandeur, comes through powerfully in Walt Whitman's poem, When I Heard the Learned Astronomer from Leaves of Grass. In that poem, the speaker, listening to a lecture in which the heavens are measured and described with mathematical precision and intellectual aloofness, grows sick in soul. He has to retreat back into the world to recover. And the poem goes like this. When I heard the learned astronomer, when the proofs, the figures were ranged in columns before me, when I was shown the charts and diagrams to add, divide, and measure them, when I, sitting, heard the astronomer where he lectured with much applause in the lecture room. How soon, unaccountable, I became tired and sick, till rising and gliding out, I wandered off by myself in the mystical, moist night air, and from time to time, looked up in perfect silence at the stars. What is it about nature that calls to the human soul? Why are we compelled to go out into the woods or down to the shore? Why are we willing to endure the struggles of the mountain, hiking and sweating up steep, rocky paths that bring us no material advantage, no utilitarian gain? What do we see when, like Whitman, we look up in perfect silence at the stars? I come to my solitary woodland walk as the homesick go home, wrote Henry David Thoreau. And maybe it's something like that, right? Maybe when we go out into nature, we're in some sense coming home. Coming home to the world and coming home to ourselves. In nature, we find our self-enclosed isolation dissolving and a restorative communion with life arising. Immersed in nature, we become like nature once again. And so, as we heard, Jung is moved to write, at times I feel as if I am spread out over the landscape and inside things, and am myself living in every tree, in the plashing of the waves, in the clouds and the animals that come and go, in the procession of the seasons. The pace of modern life 
deceives us into thinking that life means more experience of more things. And this leads to that unique anxiety of the 21st century, the fear of missing out. But what we are really missing out on in all our frantic searching after stimulation and excitement is that deeper, subtler, more lasting reality that is reflected in the longer arc of the rhythms of nature. Embraced by nature, those rhythms become our own, as does the great mystery that we sense behind it all. Imperceptibly, our feverish doing gives way to an encounter with being. However slight it may be, our lives are in those moments infused with the sense of the eternal. Now, it's important to recognize that there is something reciprocal at work here. We don't return to nature simply for our own personal benefit. Being cared for by nature is also a way of caring for nature. The nature of individuation, we might say, also includes the individuation of nature. That is, as we become ourselves, we learn to allow it to be itself, and we cease to try to force it to serve our merely human ends. Love the world as your own self, we read in the Tao Te Ching. Then you can truly care for all things. And it was in this spirit, I believe, as he reflected on the environment in and around his tower at Bollingen, that Jung wrote those words we heard at the beginning of the episode. There is nothing in the tower that has not grown into its own form over the decades, nothing with which I am not linked. Here, everything has its history and mine. Individuation is not simply our own private affair. It is fully bound up with life in the world, and this, perhaps, is the key takeaway. Our individuation simultaneously makes space for the individuation of others. Not just the people around us, but the things of the world as well, and even the world itself. By becoming what we are meant to be, we lift the burden of our own lack of fulfillment from off the shoulders of all these others. We no longer give them the responsibility of compensating for our unlived lives. And so they are freed to unfold according to their own natural pattern. 
Jung's experience of merging with the landscape, with the trees and animals, is an example of what is known in many spiritual traditions as purity of heart. This is not a term for being good, but rather it describes a style of perception that is unencumbered by preconceived ideas, narrow concepts, or personalistic desires. For the theologian Raymond Panikkar, a pure heart is the crucial prerequisite for an authentic encounter with nature, one that opens up to the transcendent mystery that surrounds and permeates it. He writes, we shall not discover the real situation we are in, collectively as well as individually, if our hearts are not pure, if our lives are not in harmony within ourselves, with our surroundings, and ultimately with the universe at large. Only when the heart is pure are we in harmony with the real, in tune with reality, able to hear its voice, detect its dynamism, and truly speak its truth. And this statement is almost a direct parallel of our quote from Jung. When we enter into communion with nature, we are not only able to unfold ourselves more fully, but the things of the world too grow into their own forms. From this place, says Panikkar, we begin to hear the voice of being, to sense its movement in our lives, and to let it speak itself through those lives. As Jung poetically formulates it, here is space for the spaceless kingdom of the world's and the psyche's hinterland. Until next time. You'll find information in the show notes for all the sources used in this week's episode, as well as links to connect with me on social media. Let's make this a conversation. If you have any comments or questions about anything you heard in this episode, or that you'd like me to address in a future episode, send them to me on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, if you want a deeper dive into the kind of material explored on this podcast, please check out my book, Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life, available from Chiron Publications. Thanks for listening, and take good care. Thank you.